So back a few months ago, during our women's Bible study on Tuesday mornings, I taught on the book, The Rock, The Road, and The Rabbi, and I talked to some of the ladies who attended that, and they were okay with me teaching it now. It's actually six lessons, but I'm not doing six sessions. I'm doing three tonight, and we'll do three next Wednesday, and that'll take care of the whole book. So I've had to condense it, and I'm going to do a lot of talking to get it all in. The book, The Rock, The Road, and The Rabbi, was written by Kathy Lee Gifford and Rabbi Jason Sobel. Everybody knows who Kathy Lee Gifford is, I think. This was an excellent book. I mean, I really enjoyed it. If you get a chance to buy it and read it, you should read it. It's really good. Rabbi Jason is a Messianic Jew. A Messianic simply means a Jewish individual who believes that Jesus is the Messiah, that he has already come and that he is coming back. So that's a Messianic Jew. A Messianic Jew, I'm sure he knows all of the scriptures. He has studied them from childhood up. I was watching a little snip of him on YouTube, if you ever want to watch him. And he was talking about when he was a teenager, he got a Bible and started reading about Jesus. And his parents said, oh no, he's in a cult. And so they sent him to some other rabbi to talk. And he started asking this rabbi all kinds of questions. And he didn't satisfy the answers he was looking for. So he searched it out and found the scriptures bring everything to Jesus, that Jesus is the Messiah. So we're going to take a journey into the land that God promised to Abraham and his descendants. It is a dry, rocky piece of land, roughly the size of New Hampshire. It has been quarreled over for years because it lies on a land bridge linking Asia and Africa, and is therefore a key part of the trade route between those two countries. We are visiting the Holy Land where Jesus lived. We're going to look at his life and the places where he lived, taught, died, and rose again. So let's first go to the place of Jesus' birth, Bethlehem. Bethlehem is a small town about six miles south-southwest of Jerusalem. Today, its population is about 25,000. In Jesus' day, Bethlehem had a population of fewer than 1,000 and maybe as few as 100. So in your mind, think about what you think Bethlehem looks like. Bethlehem was the birthplace of King, G of King David, and in the book of, of Luke, chapter 2, it calls the, it the city of David. Prophecy told about the Messiah, the descendant of David. He would be born in Bethlehem. The Messiah was expected to be a, a godly military leader like David, who would drive out the foreign oppressors who controlled the Holy Land. This is what they're looking for. Today's Bethlehem is much different than what we can imagine. Kathy Lee in her book says that the city is controlled by the Palestinian Authority, and she said it is darkly oppressive. Uh, she even goes on to say there are military checkpoints as you enter and exit the city. Not how we would see the, birth, the city where Jesus was born. Now we all know the story of Jesus' birth, but we're going to examine it just a little closer. In Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, 
we know that Joseph takes his uh, Mary, his espoused wife, and they start their trip for from Nazareth to Bethlehem. The trip is about 80 miles, and it would have taken about four days. In Luke uh, verses 6 through 7, we know that Jesus was born in a manger, and everybody knows that a manger is a trough that animals eat out of. We know that Jesus was wrapped in swaddling cloths. These strips of cloths were uh, fabrics that were wrapped around him to uh, immobilize the arms and the legs so that babies could rest better. Luke uh, 2, 8 through 18 talks about the shepherds. They're guarding the sheep. The angels appear, and they tell them about the Savior. Let's take a closer look at the shepherds. Now, last week, Fiona talked about the shepherds and the sheep, but there is a uniqueness to these particular shepherds. The NIV Bible says that the shepherds were nearby. Now, according to Jewish uh, tradition, it would have been forbidden to keep sheep that close to Bethlehem or Jerusalem unless they were special sheep. These shepherds weren't ordinary shepherds. They were Levitical shepherds who were trained and had the responsibility of tending to and guarding the sheep that were used for sacrifice in the temple in Jerusalem. These shepherds were from the tribe of Levi. So therefore they would have known the messianic prophecies and when they were told to find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, they would have known where to go and how to find the baby and what to look for. So let's connect the shepherds with the place where they found Jesus. When we think about the birth of Jesus, we know that he was laid in a manger. Therefore, we automatically, because of our culture, we're in the western part of the world, we think that he was born in some type of a barn or a shed. But it is believed that Jesus was born in a Luke 2 says that there was no room in the inn, but it does not say that he stayed in a stable. It just says there was no room in the inn. Jesus was most likely born in one of the many caves used for birthing the sacrificial lambs because he himself would be the ultimate sacrificial lamb. Everything God does has significance and it leads us to understand all things better. Just because you know, in that part of the world, their culture, their the way they live is different than the way we do. So that's why we need to be able to maybe look a little beyond what we know and dig a little deeper to see that the possibility of him being born in cave was most likely the truth. Even though we weren't there and they weren't there. But all these things connect together. Not only would the location of Jesus' birth be significant to these shepherds, but so would the fact that Jesus was wrapped in swaddling cloths. When the shepherds had a sheep who was about to give birth, they would bring the sheep into one of the caves surrounding Bethlehem. These birthing caves were kept in a stage, state of ritual purity. Since these lambs were destined to be used as a sacrifice in the temple, they had to be pure. When a sacrificial lamb was born, the shepherds had to make sure the lambs did not develop any imperfections. 
If you've ever seen, even on TV, a baby animal being born, they're wobbly, they stumble, they fall. Well, they did not want these sheep to fall and stumble because then they would be imperfect and they couldn't be sacrificed in the temple. You know, the scripture tells us that only animals without spot or blemish could be used for the sacrifice in the temple. Now, many scholars believe that these shepherds would swaddle the newborn lambs in order to prevent them from becoming blemished by injuring themselves on the jagged parts of the cave. Think about that. They're swaddling the lambs. They swaddled Jesus. Another key aspect of swaddling in ancient Israel was salting the newborn. I had never heard this. I thought it was so interesting. After Jesus was born, Joseph would have washed the baby and then scrubbed him with a salt mixed with a little amount of olive oil. The salt was used as a disinfectant and to kill any bacteria found on the baby's body. It's likely that Israelite mothers saw salting of their infant as a way to symbolically offer their child in service to the Lord. Salt was also an indispensable part of every sacrifice in the temple. Leviticus 2.13, you are to season with salt every sacrifice of your grain offering. You are never to allow the salt of the covenant of your God to be lacking from your grain offering. With all your sacrifices, you must offer salt. Now, Jesus is born in the same location as the temple offerings, the lambs. He was washed with salt as part of the swaddling process. And then he was swaddled, which points, all these point to the future sacrifice of the Passover lamb of God. Everything is symbolic. Everything He's showing us that it all connects. Everything connects. The lambs that are sacrificed, then Jesus came as the ultimate sacrifice. So he was going to be, uh, salt was going to be poured on him because every sacrifice had to have salt. He was swallowed. He was, all these things were done for a purpose. Now there's a deeper meaning of the swallowing clothes. When the temple priest's garments became so dirty to the point that the stains could not be washed out, it was no longer acceptable to be worn in temple service. The unusable garments were not destroyed. They were cut up and used for another holy purpose. The tunics of the ordinary priests were used to make wicks for the menorah. Everybody knows what a menorah is. It's a seven-branch candelabra. And that was to burn continually in the holy place in the temple. Now, it's speculation, but I like it. But it is possible that the swaddling cloths used for Jesus came from Elizabeth, who was married to the priest Zachariah. We know that as soon as Mary saw Elizabeth, Elizabeth's baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth said, You are blessed among women, women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Elizabeth knew that, that Mary was carrying the Messiah. She blessed her with swaddling cloths. This is what the speculation is. Again, they think of all the symbolism that we've seen thus far, that her giving the priestly garments that were strips to swaddle baby Jesus in. He is the priest. 
The shepherds saw the baby swaddled in like a sacrificial Passover lamb and priestly garments that were used for the lighting of the menorah in the temple, which symbolized the eternal presence and promise of God. It pointed to Jesus being both the Lamb of God and the light of the world. All of these things just amaze me how they connect. The birth of Jesus also involved the Magi. Everybody knows who the Magi were, right? They were astronomers who saw signs in the heaven about many things. So how did the Magi know that the star would lead them to the king of the Jews? All of this, it had to be a revelation from God, right? From the angels. And, well, the, I don't know if the angels talked to them, but uh, it was revelation. They knew the history because either they had studied the prophecies of Isaiah or they had heard them from the Jews that lived around them, right? They were determined to find the baby and go worship him. Now, in our retelling of the story of the Magi, we automatically think there were three because there were three gifts. But nowhere in scripture does it say there were just three. There could have been many who traveled to find Jesus. They could have, you know, not just the Magi themselves, but their, their servants and anybody that would go along to help them travel that distance. The Magi would have had to travel eight to 900 miles to find Jesus. If the star appeared the night that Jesus was born, then the Magi would have started within a day or two of its appearing. So traveling that far would have taken months, possibly up to two years. You know, the, the scripture says, and I don't know exactly, I'm sure it's in Matthew, says they came to the house where the child was. Didn't say they came to a shed or a barn or a cave. They came to the house where the child was. So it's very possible that anywhere from six months to two years, they, they came to see Jesus. Which brings us to Herod. Why was Herod disturbed by the news of the birth of who the Magi called the king of the Jews? He was jealous. That's right. He called himself king of the Jews, even though he wasn't a Jew. He was from... Uh, an Edomite from the Dead Sea area. He was a power-hungry ruler who destroyed anyone he feared was trying to take over his throne. Hmm, I think we got some of that today. Rabbi Sobel talks in the book about there being seven festivals surrounding Jesus. The first festival is Passover, or Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is on the Jewish calendar. It is the seventh month of the civil and the first of the religious year of the Jewish calendar. It's usually March or April. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, was offered as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Just as the blood of the Lamb sprinkled on the doorpost of Jewish homes caused the Spirit of the Lord to pass over those homes during the plague on Egypt, Jesus became the ultimate sacrifice, ultimate Passover lamb to free, our, to free us of our sins. The second festival is the Feast of First Fruits. Now this takes place during the week of Passover. It's, it amazes me how these feasts overlap each other, it seems like. 
this was Jesus' resurrection on the Jewish holiday. Just as Christ was the first to rise from the dead and receive a glorified body, so shall all those who are born again and follow him be resurrected to inherit an incorruptible body. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 35-39. Number three, it's Feast of Weeks. This is Pentecost. It occurs 50, day, 50 days after the First Fruits Festival. It celebrated the end of the grain harvest, and the Greek for Pentecost is 50th. Pretty simple. The primary focus of the festival was gratitude to God for the harvest. The feast reminds us of the fulfillment of Jesus' promise to send another helper. Pentecost. Number four is the Feast of Trumpets, or Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, which is, starts at, in September at sundown. The Feast of Trumpets uh, was, you were, they were to blow the shofar. And everybody, has everybody heard the shofar blow? Great. And the sound was to remind us to repent and to reflect. So it's very important. The next is the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur. This is September and October. It occurs just 10 days after the Feast of Trumpets. The Day of Atonement was the day the high priest went into the Holy of Holies each year to make an offering for the sins of Israel. The next one is the Feast of Tabernacles, also Booths, B-O-O-T-H-S. It is the sixth feast of the Lord and took place five days after the Day of Atonement. This feast signifies the future time when Christ rules and reigns on earth. For the rest of eternity, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will tabernacle or dwell with Christ in the new Jerusalem. And the next one is the Feast of Lights, or Hanukkah. Everybody's heard Hanukkah. This is in December. An eight-day celebration which commemorates the rededication during the second century B.C. of the Second Temple of Jerusalem. On this holiday, a candle is lit each day until all the candles have been lit. Now, we're going to talk about the birth of Jesus. The birthday of Jesus, I should say. Now, I don't want to upset anybody. This is all just theoretical because nobody knows for sure these answers. But Jason Sobel, the rabbi, has studied, and this is what he says. He said it is very possible that Jesus was born during the Feast of Tabernacles, which is in September. He says that because he's tabernacling among us. In John 1.14, it says the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Does this mean we're not going to celebrate in December? No. It just means this is something to maybe study out. Maybe you might want to to dig deeper into that and see what you find. But this is what he's saying, because every feast, something about Jesus occurred on every feast and around all the feasts. His birth, his death, his resurrection. Uh, it's also possible that he could have been uh, conceived, if he, if he was born in September, he would have been conceived during Hanukkah, or the Feast of Lights, 
which begins December 16th and goes through December 26th. We don't know. I don't, none of us know for sure when he was born. We know when he died, but we don't know when he was born for sure. Uh, the thought that Jesus was not born in December is because it was the rainy season and shepherds weren't in the fields at night in the winter. So that's a possibility. It's just something to think about. It's just hypothetical because, like I said, nobody knows for sure. He could have been uh, born in December just as well as September. So don't stop celebrating Christmas. It's called I said that. <laughs> so now we're going to go to Nazareth. Herod became angry when the Magi did not return, and he sent out his soldiers to kill all children to an under. However, God already knew Herod's plan. So he sent an angel to Joseph to take Jesus and Mary and flee. His parents took him to Egypt for several years until it was safe to return to their homeland. They settled in Nazareth, a community of fewer than 500 people, and it was 80 miles north of Bethlehem. It is here Jesus remained until he began his earthly ministry. Now, Rabbi Sobel leads us to believe that Jesus probably wasn't a carpenter the way that we think, working with wood, but, a car, but an architect working with stones. The majority of homes in Israel are constructed with stone. Does this mean that Jesus never worked with wood? No, he doesn't. Uh, while it's not conclusive one way or the other what he did, the fact that a man attempting to make a living as a wood carpenter would have had a challenging time because trees were and still are relatively scarce in that part of the country. Since Jesus is possibly a stonemason, this gives us more reason to understand these verses. Matthew 16, 18. On this rock I will build my church. And Psalm 118, 22 says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So if he was a stonemason, he would have, those would have been verses that would really get home, right? Regardless of the specifics, whether he was worked with wood or whether he worked with stone, what do you know? What do you learn about Jesus from that? He took care of his family. He was a hard worker. He followed in his earthly father's footsteps until he began his ministry. So he was obedient to his parents, even, I think, all the way up into, even up through his whole life, but he stayed there, and like Carol said, he took care of his family, he helped do what was necessary at the time, especially since we don't know much about Joseph after they came back from Egypt. We don't, I don't think we hear anything else about him, so uh, he may have had to help do things to help finance the household, to keep things running. So he was the oldest too, right? So he would have been next to, he would have been in charge when dad was gone. So it's, it's good to think about that Jesus worked and did just like we did until he began his ministry. And then he had a harder job. Let's go to Cana. Now, John chapter two, 
The place of Jesus' first miracle is Cana. A wedding was a huge event for a Jewish village. The whole village would attend and the celebration could go on for days. Running out of wine was a social disaster. Why do you think Jesus turned the water into wine? Well, one reason I had heard of was that Jesus knew the family and he did not want them to be embarrassed because they ran out of wine. And I believe that's probably true because his mother was friends with the family and he knew the family, so he wanted to take help take care of them. But in this book, it states that Jesus takes advantage of the situation to teach his disciples something. The feast of the Messiah's coming has arrived, is what he's telling them. It is transforming the mere water of Jewish ceremonial washing into the excellent wine of God's kingdom. The Messiah has come. The time of celebration is now, is what he was trying to get across to his disciples. So why was Jesus' first recorded miracle turning water into wine? Well, according to the Torah and Jewish tradition, the Messiah was going to be greater than Moses. So what was the first miracle Moses performed? He turned water into blood. But Jesus, the greater Moses, turned water into wine because he did not come to bring death, but so that we might have life and have it more abundantly. Jesus' first miracle is symbolic of what the Lord wants to do in you. Like the water into wine, God wants to transform us from ordinary into extraordinary. So Moses turning water into blood represents death. Jesus turning water into wine represents life. He is the greater Moses. All right, let's go to the village of Capernaum. Capernaum means field of repentance, the city of consultation. It's the field of repentance, the city of consultation. Capernaum sits on the northwest coast of the Sea of Galilee. In Jesus' day, it probably covered less than 25 acres and housed 600 to 1,500 people. Fishing was the main local enterprise. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17, the scripture tells us about Jesus departing from Nazareth and making Capernaum the main center of his activity during a large portion of his public ministry. Capernaum is also reported to be the hometown of Matthew the tax collector and located not far from Bethsaida, the hometown of the apostles Simon Peter, Andrew, James, and John. It was the scene of many mighty works. Matthew 4 also tells us of Jesus healing all manner of diseases, tormented people, demon-possessed, epileptic, and paralytics. In Matthew 8, Jesus heals a leper, the centurion's servant, and Simon Peter's mother-in-law. It's believed that here is where Jesus also raised Jairus' daughter to life. This is the area where Jesus and his disciples got in the boat to go to the other side. 
When Jesus fell asleep and the waves began to overtake the boat, causing distress for the disciples. They wake Jesus and he rebukes the wind and waves and becomes and all becomes calm. When Jesus and the disciples return to Capernaum, Matthew 9, 1 says that he came to his own city. That's why we believe that this was his home base for most of his uh, ministry. Making this more evident that Jesus was there. Capernaum is situated at the foot of the Galilean hills, where hot springs rich in minerals bring naturally warm water to the surface. The town is situated on the shore of the Sea of Galilee in the Jordan Valley and lies about 700 feet below sea level. As a result, and I thought this was great, the climate is warmer than in Jerusalem or on the Judean hills, and it would have been pleasant for crowds to sit outside in the sunshine listening to Jesus, even during the autumn and winter months. So that's another good reason why he wanted to, his home base to be there. It was a warmer climate, and the people could, wouldn't have to huddle up and, and be cold, but they could sit and enjoy listening to Jesus. Jesus was also called a rabbi. Rabbi were men who would go out and call people to follow them, just like he called uh, the fishermen, come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. The rabbis would teach the people who had no formal education. They would explain the fundamentals of faith. The greatest of all rabbis was now among them, Jesus Christ, because he taught with great authority. Jesus also had a great compassion for the people. He never belittled them or talked down to them like the Pharisees or the Sadducees. Jesus delivered hope to the people on a daily basis. Rabbi Jason tells us that it had been debated for centuries about Jesus teaching in the synagogues. We've heard that. He went in, he taught in the synagogue, he preached in the synagogue. Yeah. But because years later, there was no evidence that these synagogues existed. Obviously, they were destroyed maybe in battles or maybe they deteriorated or whatever it would be. They just weren't there until recently when a synagogue was discovered. And since that first discovery, other synagogues have been uh, discovered in, and I'm not going to be able to pronounce these right, Migdal, Herodian, Quamrum, Masada, Magdala, and in August of 2016, another synagogue was discovered in Tel Rishesh in Lower Galilee. Now, I would have always thought that the synagogues were always there. But obviously, through time, they were gone. Uh, we look out and we things we were familiar with are gone for one reason or another. Maybe somebody just tore them down. Who knows? But obviously, they were buried under rocks and stuff, and they found them. And it's interesting to learn that the centurion who asked Jesus to heal his servant, who was a Gentile, he built the synagogue for the Jewish people. I didn't know that either, but he's built the synagogue for these people. It sounds like the centurion had a love for God's people, and he wanted them to have a place to worship. And in the video, when I, well, when I purchased this uh, Bible study, it came with a video, and Kathy Lee and Rabbi Jason are standing in front of the synagogue that they believe was the one that this centurion had built. 
And so it's really fascinating. I'm telling you, this book has got so much information. I'm just getting hit and miss here. Jesus taught mostly by using parables because the average person could relate to things they could see, smell, hear, touch, and taste. Think about parables. They are an art form of communication. Think about Jesus pointing to the field and saying, consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. I didn't know this, but there are flowers everywhere in Israel. Everywhere. So it just makes sense that Jesus would point out to those flowers and use them in his parable to ask a question. Jesus used everyday objects to teach lessons. In Luke 17, Jesus uses a millstone. Well, think about this. He used that as an example and said, it would be better for you a millstone to be hung around your neck and drowned in the sea than to, than to offend one of these little ones. Ooh, can you imagine putting that around your neck? You never would come out of that water. You'd sink to the very bottom. So he used all of these because they people could visualize and see it and understand it when he used those in parables for them. Now, one last thing that was brought out in the book, in this book, is that the Bible is filled with numbers that are significant to God and to man. Seven appears more than 600 times in the Bible. God rested on the seventh day. Twelve. Twelve tribes of Israel. Jesus chose twelve disciples. Forty. Flood lasted 40 days and nights. Is, uh, Israelites wandered 40 years in the wilderness. And Jesus was tempted for 40 days and nights. The number seven means perfection or completeness. Perfection or completeness. Number 12 represents authority. And the number 40 is closely associated with trials and testing that lead to transformation. So seven means perfection and completeness. Twelve represents authority. Forty is trial and testing that lead to transformation. When we study the scriptures, we find that all things are significant. In-depth study helps us to recognize that God has a reason and a purpose for everything that has happened and is going to happen. It's just amazing that I, I, through this study, I've learned so much that I didn't know. I really enjoyed learning about the swallow clothes, the salting, the being born in a cave, because I can just see that. I can see Jesus being born in that cave where the sacrificial lambs were born. So believe it, don't believe it, that's up to you. But it's something to consider, all these different things are. So the Messianic Jew. It's an individual who believes that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and he's coming again. Who are these shepherds and what were they trained to do? And they're Levitical shepherds, yes. Levitical shepherds who tend and train and guard the sheep used for sacrifice in the temple. 
Jesus was most likely born in a cave like the sacrificial lambs. Jesus would be the ultimate sacrificial lamb. Yes. 